Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to uh, Trita Parsi, who is a bit of an expert on Iran, the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of questions about Saudi Arabia, Iran. I have a lot of questions about the weird semi-potential realignment that's going on in terms of Venezuela. Mm-hmm. That, I, th- I find that news fascinating. Um, so, yeah, he should he should really, you know, have a lot of pertinent and relevant information about that and by extension kind of Ukraine and Russia as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, he's someone Sagar and I have relied on a lot for thinking about the Iran nuclear deal mm. and any of our sort of Middle Eastern uh, wars. And he will be great to dig into those topics. I'm excited because I've never had the chance to dig in with him for like a full hour mm. and, and get all of his thoughts on the region. So it should be really good. Yeah. On the Iran nuclear deal in particular, I'm curious if he has the same reading that I've had because I remember every time I covered that and I followed it very, very closely, I was always astonished at how brazen the U.S. would be. Like we would violate the deal, pull out of the deal, and then chastise them if they no longer abided by the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What? Like, like you, let's we remember, pulled out and violated it. we're the ones who violated it and walked away, and then we're demanding all these concessions from them right. before we start. But the, I mean, the reporting right now is that they're pretty close to re-entering the deal. Russia's throwing a wrench into things, That's what so I was there's say, yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of outstanding questions right now. And then, of course, with the Biden administration banning Russian oil. Like, all right, we got to make up that oil somewhere. Um, and that's why they're looking to Iran and Venezuela potentially. Yeah. So anyway, it should very be very interesting. interesting, very interesting podcast. Now, before we get into that, there's this new poll that came out. If Americans were in the same position as Ukrainians right now, more Republicans than Democrats would stay and fight. According to a poll released Monday, it's a Quinnipiac University poll. 68% said they would stay and fight compared to 40% of Democrats. So 68% of Republicans are like, I'd stay and fight. Mm-hmm. of Democrats said, I'd stay and fight. Um, Among Democrats, 52% said they would flee the country compared to just 25% of Republicans. Now, the overall number for the entire country is 55% said they would stay and fight. So what's your reaction to that number one? Number two, do you even believe the 55% or some of them just like, (laughs) yeah, bro, I'd stay and fight. And the second they hear like a a BB gun, they're like, ah, I gotta go. Yeah, Yeah, no, I don't believe it. (laughs) I mean, and nor do I think This was put out there by a lot of uh, right-wing media outlets to basically be like, look at these Democrats, they're such cowards, they would flee the second that trouble came to our shores. But I would proudly say that I would be one of the ones who would flee. I mean, my first, second, third, fourth, fifth priorities in this world are taking care of my family and my babies. So the minute there was an actual, like, life-threatening situation, yeah, I would get the hell out. I'm not going to die for some, like, national borders and high-minded ideals. To act like it's not even a debatable issue. You know, yeah. to try to, like, slam dunk it on people. Like, you'd leave, bitch. It's like, well, like you said, what if you have kids that you're worried about? Like, a lot of, a lot of people, probably most people, just want some semblance of, like, stability and peace and order. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, again, to act like it's not a debatable issue strikes me as, like, really, really dishonest. Now, don't don't get me wrong. I've often said on on my show a number of times, a war that I would have gone and fought is World War II, if I was alive at the time, because, you know, you had what was effectively the embodiment of evil. Right. Adolf Hitler. And there was no, like, I don't see any persuasive counter argument that, oh, maybe it's more complex than we think. Or, I mean, look, uh, of course, the Treaty of Versailles also helped lead to the rise of Hitler. I don't think you could have had a Hitler without the Treaty of Versailles that screwed over the people of Germany so thoroughly that they turned to a demagogue. Right. But even given that piece of context, 
the ideology that was driving Hitler, apart from the material conditions, it was as bad as it gets. It was yeah. like, we're going to throw people in gas chambers yeah. if you're Jews, if you're Roma, if you're gay, if you're disabled. And it was just, it, it, it's every bit as bad as the propaganda made it out to be. Like, the propaganda was factual. Like, it wasn't even like you had to exaggerate or anything. So I would have fought that war because I would have felt like it's the noble thing to do. It's a virtuous thing to do. The problem is, any war you get to that's like even a little bit of gray area, then you're like, do I really want to die for this one? Like, yeah. I was joking with you that, you know, if I was in the position right now, like, I'd be turned to the, my fellow soldiers next to me and be like, you know, they probably shouldn't have expanded NATO. That was a little <laughs> fucked up. Like, it's going to just I'm kill the morale. Insane. And I mean, the Azov Battalion is sort of shitty. And I mean, they are Nazis. So, I mean, they, they, you know, it, all I'm saying is it's complicated. It's complex. And that's true. It's true. So it's almost like the only thing I would be motivated enough to like, okay, I'm really going to go pick up arms and fight is if you're fighting pure evil. Yeah. And in this case, you could say, you could say it's evil, but there's also like a lot of, uh, a lot of different uh, nuances in the conversation that a lot of people don't give it credit for. Yes, I think that's true. And also if your knee jerk reaction is just like the right answer is I would stay and fight period, end of story. Well, there are millions of refugees fleeing Ukraine right now, and they deserve a lot of sympathy and a lot of support. And these are the people who, quote unquote, quote, decided to flee. You know, um, I think that they are very noble. I think they've faced down very difficult conditions. I think they're going to have difficult choices on their hands as well. And so to make it this very one-sided, the only right answer is to stay and fight is a little bit silly. And you said yesterday something about it, it, it's really a light bulb moment for you in terms of realizing how uh, terrible ultra-nationalism is. Yeah, this is something I've been really thinking a lot about because obviously, like, the Russian, and I, I want to be clear, like, the Putin-Kremlin actions here, they don't make any sense even as, like, you know, just sort of naked realism. Um, they only make sense in the concept of this toxic nationalism that people are willing to do anything for, um, that Putin appears willing to do anything for. And I think throughout our history, obviously, that sort of nationalist fervor mm. has led to all sorts of, you know, disgusting atrocities and wars. And, you know, at the same time, like, there's a noble form of patriotism. I find these conversations very complex and difficult to navigate, to be honest with you, because then you have a lot of support for Ukrainian nationalism right now, including, you know, some elements, some fringe elements of Ukrainian nationalism, which are these sort of like fervent, uber, right-wing nationalism to the point of neo-Nazism that people are very comfortable celebrating, even though that emotion and that sort of value comes from similar, similar sort of human responses, what Putin is doing right now. So it's, we're, we're rightly condemning the invasion and the actions of the uber-nationalists on the Russian side, while at the same time sort of, you know, bolstering that ideology on the Ukrainian side. And I just find it, I don't know what any of it means. I just find it complex to navigate. Well, to your point about the reflexive backing of uh, ultra-nationalism on the Ukrainian side in the West, yeah, I mean, it, does, it doesn't take much to see. Just take like two steps back and relax a little bit, and mm -hmm. you'll realize we're in the midst of hysteria right now. Like, there is a mania happening right now. Yes. Uh, Ilhan Omar learned that the hard way because she took a principled stand on something that made sense. Ilhan Omar wasn't even saying, 
we're not, we shouldn't arm Ukrainians anymore. She was just saying, hey, can we, when we arm them, can we just be a little smart about where the weapons are going? Because, you know, there are paramilitaries in there. The Azov Battalion is real. They're part of the National Guard. Maybe don't arm them or try your best to have rules attached to it as we arm them. Yeah. Like, and, and she got, I mean, you would think she came out for pedophilia or some shit with she the, the reaction. Had, people were sending her pictures of, like, dead Ukrainian kids with the implication that this was on her hands somehow. They were saying, like, she's a, somehow an anti-white racist because she's not backing the Ukrainians, but she, you know, what? supports <laughs> Palestinian. I mean, it was just, like, completely deranged. And, of course, all the stuff about you're a Russian puppet and you're a traitor to the country and all of this. And, and her point on oil, too. Yeah, her point on, on because, oil is the, you know, one similar to what I've been making, at least, and I think you have been as well, that we should really be thinking about the consequences for ordinary Russians and what this is going to lead to three steps down the road. Everybody is, you know, I, I think it comes from a really noble place. People are like, we see the suffering. We want to do something. We're willing to sacrifice. Like, tell us what to do. And um, she's just saying, you know, there are, are consequences to these actions that may not be what you ultimately want them to do. So you take this genuine concern for Ukrainians and what it's being spun into right now, particularly by the media and by a lot of politicians, is a, a program that is very extreme by historical standards. We've never had sanctions against a G20 nation that look anything like this. We've done it very casually. And then the amount of arms that are flowing into the country in a period of time that's just like this is also extraordinary by historical standards. And all she's saying is like, we should maybe talk about this stuff. So I have like 500 things I want to respond to. Now. Hold <laughs> on. So you made a point about like, well, you know, it's coming from a noble place with people, you know, people's instinct on this. But I would caution people because you know what else came from a noble place? The tough on crime policies of the 90s. Mm -hmm. People saw soaring crime. and They were like, I just throw the fucking book we at everybody. Do something, yeah. And then now in retrospect, when people sober the fuck up, they're like, oh, that was actually terrible. So the, the whole like noble, it's like everybody thinks they're being noble. Like, nobody thinks they're an evil person twisting their evil mustache, like, ha, 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 I'm going to make bad decisions. Yeah. So, yeah, it comes from a good place, but that doesn't mean Dickie McGee. But yeah. Vladimir Putin thinks he's coming from a good place when he's uh, like, I must restore the maybe. glory of the Russian Empire. Maybe. I mean, I, I just think what I'm trying to point to is that this energy could be channeled in a very different direction. And, you know, one of my other big frustrations here is that you have these sky-high gas prices, you know, that are really going to be difficult for working-class people who are already really stretched thin. And, of course, it pales in comparison to the suffering of the Ukrainians. But this is very, you know, it's very real and very tangible for people. And you see this sort of drumbeat from a lot of wealthy people, like it's your patriotic duty to pay more in taxes. And there is this willingness to sacrifice, and yet it's not being channeled in the direction of, hey, let's make sure we never end up in this situation again. Let's get off the sauce of fossil fuels. Like, now's our chance. We're going to engage the country in a national program that can move us in a better direction as a country and it'll be better for the planet. There's no channeling of all of this frenzied emotion in any sort of a, a positive direction. And instead, you end up with, you know, a really ugly thing coming out, which is this, like, anti-Russian mania that you're seeing among some as well, like, boycotting Russian restaurants and, in the worst cases, vandalizing Russian restaurants and calling them and telling them they're Nazis and all of this stuff. Even restaurants that some of them are, aren't even owned by Russians, some of them even owned by Ukrainians. So when you speak to a hysteria without the right kind of leadership, 
you know, channeling this in actually productive direction instead of into extraordinarily onerous sanctions that may well backfire that are going to devastate the Russian economy and the Russian people and, you know, just blanket mass uh, funneling in of weapons with no accountability or thought of how this could ultimately end up, you know, it's a it's a landscape where it becomes very controversial to just say what Congresswoman Omar said, which is let's pause and think about what we're doing here. I'm, I'm more pessimistic than you that it's even theoretically possible to channel this hysteria in a positive way. Hysteria, by definition, is the enemy of nuance. And so it's always going to be channeled in a negative way. And that's a struggle that everybody seems to have in moments like this of allowing nuance into their thought process. Mm -hmm. Like, I have tremendous sympathy for the, the victims of the invasion in Ukraine, the Ukrainian civilians I care deeply about. I also care about the Russian civilians who are undergoing economic warfare now, who had nothing to do, in fact, many of them are out in the streets protesting what Putin right. did, mm -hmm. and they're roadkill in the conversation. So yeah, that's right. I just, uh, unfortunately, I'm just very pessimistic that at moments like this, I mean, when has it ever been channeled for something positive? I mean, you look what happened after 9-11 with the Patriot Act and the rise in discrimination and crimes against people who look vaguely brown and Arab and Muslim. Like, the, unfortunately, that's just par for the course when we're at a moment like this, and ultra-nationalism, I think the reason why it's so toxic, to your point a while ago, is that it manifests as a fundamentalist religion in, in many ways. Yeah. Like, you have to shut off your brain and go mindlessly like a lemming down the path that you're told is the correct path. And the correct path, what everybody thinks is the correct path now, is, you know, a, a war posture, effectively, where, like you said, I mean, they're banning Russian cats from cat shows. <laughs> I mean, that's preposterous. Do you have... I, at first, I thought it was just small businesses that were like, we're not going to sell Russian vodka anymore. No, turns out ten, over 10 states passed laws saying we are banning the sale oh of Russian. God. It's psychotic. It's psychotic. And so you insane. see this all over the place. And, um, you know, it's a, it's just for uh, o Congressman Omar said the thing that is absolutely correct. She's like, look, I'm fine with arming people for defensive reasons because they're a sovereign nation. They have the right to do that. But let's just make sure this doesn't get into the hands of bad actors. Hmm, does that sound familiar? Let me think about it. What happened in the 1980s when we armed the Mujahideen? It's that you don't have to go back that far to see a parallel to what she's talking about. And on the oil point, again, I told you guys from the beginning, I'm in favor of every single sanction you can levy at Vladimir Putin and his oligarchs. Seize their bank accounts, seize their yachts, uh, don't allow them to fly out of the country, hit them with the book, totally fine with it. But anytime you start going after the regular innocent Russian civilians, then you're doing an action that's wrong in and of itself. You know what I mean? And so that's all she's talking about. She's like, the one area that we didn't sanction, everything else, they just threw the book at them. The one area that they didn't sanction was the oil and gas. And now they're turning around and doing that too. And, and to your other point, you think this isn't going to lead to a tremendous backlash? We already had yeah. cyber attacks the other day. Now it's pure speculation to say maybe Russia had something to do with it. But we had cyber attacks the other day. That's just the beginning, dog. Like, people think this shit is in a vacuum. We do whatever we want, and then that just stops. Like, Sean Hannity, this idiot was like, let's bomb the convoy. And it's like, well, what do you think happens next? And you know, you know where that idea came from. That came from Trump because no, then, Hannity said it first, then Trump. Said yeah, after. but I think he was talking to Trump before that. I would, I would. It seems like a very Trump. Who knows? But it seems to me like a very Trumpian idea. I think that came from him because then he says at a fundraiser, like, let's put Chinese flags on the planes and let's bomb them and pretend like it was. I, I think it was the reverse. Trump takes his marching orders from Fox. Fox doesn't take their marching orders from Trump. Mm. 
And Hannity said it twice, and he's, I think the first time he said it was days before Trump ever said it. So yeah. I'm pretty sure Hannity came up with it first. But he, I, there's no recognition of, like, what's the second order, third order, fourth order consequence? Oh, they're, I mean, that's just complete, complete insanity. And remember but when— That's how everybody's thinking, is when, my point. Yeah, remember when Lindsey Graham floated, like, what if somebody should step up and assassinate Putin? Like, this high-level, well-known, like, world-known— idiot. —U.S. senator floating that kind of shit is completely, completely insane. And yesterday he's like, I don't understand. Why aren't we backing the idea of sending in fighter jets from Poland? It's like, well, I don't know. Maybe because if a fighter jet takes off from Poland and bombs Russians, then that is easily interpreted, not inaccurately, by the way, as that's NATO attacking Russia. That's World War III. Think about it for four seconds. Yeah, Think about thank everything God for four seconds. That, I'm whole, tired. that whole thing fell apart. By the way, by the way everybody in this discussion pisses me <laughs> off, too. Like, I see a lot of people talking about, you know, Correctly talking about, look at all the, the you know, U.S. censorship and deplatforming that's happening now mm-hmm. of, of the pro-Russian view, like RT America effectively getting pulled yeah. from DirecTV. Mm-hmm. There's a number of examples of these, and I condemn that as well. But then a lot of the same people will say absolutely nothing about the fact that Russia just passed laws. You get three years in jail for citing fake news. Five, they banned no, all of their f- independent media 15 outlets. 15 years. There, so there were three different laws. One of them yeah. was three years. One of them was five years. One of them was 15 mm-hmm. years. It's for different things. But the general idea is everybody's banning dissent. And if you're only talking about it from one perspective, that's being a disingenuous hack. Yeah. It really and, is. Like, you know, like, we definitely condemn the the censorship of RT America and all the podcasts that have been taken down and this frenzy over here. But that doesn't really compare to the entire press has been shut down and, like, any sort of independent journalism actually criminalized in Russia. And if you're not saying that and pointing that out— Dishonest. Flat-out dishonest. Yeah, I'll you're, say it. you're creating dishonest. a totally— uh, a totally sort of fake image of, of what is actually happening. So stop arguing from fucking narratives is what I'd tell people. Nobody yeah. gives a, I don't give a fuck about your narrative. Nobody cares about your narrative. I don't care about how you try to take something and then twist it and square peg round hole it like you're a fucking toddler playing with a toy. I don't care about that. I want you to give the facts and the information yeah. and then you can give me your opinion. But a lot of people flip it and they're like, let me tell you my story first that I've crafted based on my worldview and my ideology mm-hmm. and then I'll try to make everything fit that. Fuck off. It's so mm-hmm. stupid. Like, how does <laughs> anybody also- watch it's like just shit. really naked right now. I think of it's, I think it's really obvious that that's going on. Um, you know, one other thing on the frenzy that and the sort of mania that's taken hold and how you know you're in this kind of moment of hysteria, which I think we all look at the events of the past, like the Iraq War or if it's Vietnam or if it's, you know, the Patriot Act. And everybody likes to think, like, if I had been in that position, I would have I would have understood this was a frenzy and a mania and I would have made the right decision. Yeah, and almost nobody does. And almost nobody <laughs> does. And that's what's True. going on with Ilhan right now. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you look back at the example of— of Barbara Lee and the Iraq war basically saying like let's step back for a moment let's pause let's not let's not go crazy here and she was you talk about a backlash i mean mm. she got so many death threats they had to assign her a personal security detail she had people writing her letters saying i wish you had died in the twin mm. towers i mean it was just as uh, and totally lots of racist stuff too i was just as ugly as it could possibly be but you know you're in a frenzy and a mania when things that just a couple weeks ago were not even on the table are suddenly not only on the table but happening. And a perfect example of that is with the economic sanctions. When we were contemplating all of this a couple weeks ago, SWIFT was as far as—that was like the 
fringe edge extreme of what was being contemplated in terms of sanctions against Russia. And now that's like, that's like nothing. You know, we did that like that. Then we went after the central bank, like the central bank sanctions. That was a massive and unprecedented. That has never happened before. Going after the gold reserve With the G20 central bank. That's never happened. And it happened like this. And then, you know, there was, okay, but there's a carve out for oil and gas. And then we've gone down that road as well. I mean, it's just things that were not even on the table suddenly happening with almost no debate, no contemplation. And that leaves you in a very frightening place because you just wonder, I saw some, you know, dozens of quote unquote foreign policy experts now signed onto a letter saying we need a no fly zone. You see that, the, that drumbeat, you know, getting we need World War Three, just getting, be honest with what you're calling for. Getting louder and louder. And um, it's it's disturbing the place we're in right now. That's right. Um, okay, another story we wanted to get to you that is not related to Russia and Ukraine, but is nonetheless very relevant and important, which is that there's new data out from the IRS that shows that in la- the last year, they audited poor people, defined as people who have an income under $25,000, at five times the rate as how much they audited everyone else. So if you made less than $25,000 a year, you were five times more likely to get audited than the entire rest of the population. And we know from previous data that if you are at the top end of the income spectrum, you are even less likely to get audited than the general population. Why? Because, I mean, there's complex reasons, but one of them is because the IRS doesn't have the resources and you have all these lawyers and the system is all, you know, rigged to your benefit. And so it's a lot more complex to go after these people. For these um, people who are making less than $25,000 a year, a lot of what the IRS was doing here is they were trying desperately to get up like their number of audits. And so they can do what's called a correspondence audit where they basically like send you a letter from the IRS asking for this and that documentation. And that's what a lot of these audits ultimately were. So correspondence audits went up to 85% of all IRS tax audits versus the 80% during the previous two years. And these are overwhelmingly targeted at poor people, basically. Yeah. Um, this is Bernie Sanders had a great fact on this that I'm blanking on right now. But some some very high percentage of federal taxes used to come from corporate taxes. And then over the years, that's been reduced, reduced, reduced. And now, you know, average Americans are picking it up more through income taxes. That's what this reminds me of. I mean, basically, you have the IRS now no teeth in it. And it's really used to shake down poor and middle class Americans. And, uh, you know, the wealthy basically get off scot-free. Also, the wealthy have teams of experts and accountants and lawyers who look for these loopholes where it's legal for them to pay less in taxes, which is, you know, that's to make it legal in a roundabout way is even more messed up, if you ask me. And there was the fact after the Trump tax cut bill got passed, you had for the first time in U.S. history, billionaires paid an effectively lower tax rate than many in the working class. And that, I mean, it's truly astounding stuff. The other thing this reminds me of is um, the Rick Scott 11-point Republican policy plan that he just released, because in that plan, one of the things on the economy is every American needs to have some skin in the game. So there's about 50% of Americans don't pay taxes. They need to pay at least a little bit of something. Oh my so God. what he's calling for there is those people who don't pay federal taxes, yeah. there's a reason they don't pay federal taxes. They don't have any fucking money. They can't afford it. And they already pay state taxes, they already pay local taxes, they pay mm-hmm. a variety of other taxes. But the reason they can't pay any federal taxes is because the bottom 50% who don't have the money. 
And his pl- the Republican plan calls for raising taxes on those people, which is like, and, and Laura Ingram had the nerve to call this populist, this plan oh a populist God. plan. It's absurd. The one it's argument, really my whole life, <laughs> one of the main arguments that Republicans always relied on to try to make the case that we're looking out for the little guy, we're looking out for the regular guy, the liberal elites, the Democrats are so out of touch, they're not looking out for you. I just, I want you to have more money in your wallet. That's what I care about. They don't want you to have it. They think the government's going to spend it better. I think you're going to spend it better. I want you to have your own money in your pocket. This was like my uncle used to make this point to me. He was a yeah. really right-wing guy. He's since passed away, but he always used to say, you'll learn when you're older. Like, you want to keep more of your money. That's, but it's like, that's not even true. If you're in the bottom 50%, they don't want you to have more money in your pocket. They want to raise your taxes. Whereas on the Democratic side, and I could go on and on with all the problems with the Democrats, but the fact of the matter is, if you look at their plans over the years, not only do they want the middle and lower classes to pay less in taxes, they want to give you more services for the less that you pay. So it's, it's, it's just, it's so stupid and fraudulent and they're actively trying to shake down the people in the country who need the help the most. Well, this is a real throwback. This, this politics is a real throwback to like the Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney era. Never and- went away. Well, that's right. It was always just there under the surface. Um, but, you know, I was looking back at when we were preparing for the interview we did about Occupy Wall Street and thinking about that and the language of the 99 percent and the 1 percent. And the Republican response to that was to point out the 47 percent of um, Americans who don't pay federal taxes. And during that era on Fox News, which was an era when I was doing a lot of actual Fox News appearances, this was a consistent drumbeat about these lazy moochers, their takers. You remember Paul Ryan talking about like they're laying in a hammock or something like that. You know, that was the whole, um, that was the whole crux of their argument about federal taxation was that actually, you know, it's the the wealthy who are propping up the whole country and they're the ones who are producing all this greatness for all of us. And it's these lazy moochers, the bottom 47% that are really the problem. And then that language famously gets picked up by Mitt Romney, who says in this famous like presidential comments about the 47% who can never, he said something like they'll never better themselves, something like that. And they're just baked in. They're going to vote for Barack Obama. Um, So we already know how unpopular. (laughs) This is a long way of saying we've already had a test case of how insanely unpopular these politics are because that one moment that was leaked out of Mitt Romney saying that thing is a big part of why he acted goes on to lose the presidential election because it seemed like it was uh, very revealing about who he actually was and how he actually thought about the American people. The Obama team had done a good job already of sort of painting him as this out-of-touch millionaire, which he was. It was accurate portrayal. Um, And then he bolsters it with that narrative. So I guess they haven't learned because they've already, they already should know how insanely unpopular this direction is. Even Mitch McConnell responded to Rick Scott and was basically like, hey, idiot, you're not supposed to say this part out loud. Shut up. This is what we say behind closed doors when the donors are there. Like, yeah, we'll just raise taxes on poor people and cut taxes more for rich people. You don't make that a prong in your policy plan because then you're going to get hammered over the head with it by the Democrats. And the other thing is they all seem to believe, it's very lazy belief on their part, they all seem to believe, oh, that that 47% that don't pay federal taxes, they're all Democrats. Right. Which is not even true. Not at all. It's not even close to true. Yeah. But that's how they that's how they think of the world. There's the makers and there's the takers. There's the productive Republicans and there's the lazy ass Democrats. Yeah. Like that's just their worldview. It's very it's the antithesis of the stuff that you talk about all the time. It's like embrace the partisanship fully. You yes. know? 
Yeah. I did find some more numbers about how many millionaires got audited. So back in 2012, about 41,000 millionaires had their tax returns audited. 41,000. Last year, 14,000. 41,000 down to 14,000. So I will say there was a bit of an uptick from last year, 2020. There were only about 11,000 millionaires who were audited. There was a little bit of an improvement there. But this has been a dramatic, um, just insane decline in the number of millionaires who are facing any scrutiny on their taxes. And, you know, I mean, that's just disgusting. And a big part of it is the IRS doesn't have the resources. They're trying to prop up their numbers in the cheapest, easiest way they possibly can. And that means going after the people with the least. That's a perfect encapsulation of Democrats versus Republicans, too, is that you have so it bottomed out under Trump at 11,000 audits of millionaires. And the Democrats come in and they're like, I'll save the day. We're going to increase that number. And they take it from 11,000 to 14,000. Right. When a decade ago it was 41,000. Right. But it's like, hey, better than Trump. Better than Trump, right? Better than Trump. <laughs> like, this is the problem with our politics right here. Better yeah. than one year of Trump. Other right. years of Trump were actually better than that. A oh, little bit. A little bit better. Not much. Um, all right, guys. We have a wonderful guest we want to go ahead and get to. Um, Dr. Teresa Parsi is executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, someone I've relied on a lot for his view of foreign affairs and especially in the Middle East. So let's get right to it. Dr. Teresa Parsi, it's great to see you in person. Good to see you both. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things that we want to get into with you, but I just want to start with a sort of broad question of how you are viewing the situation with Russia and Ukraine and how it relates to Middle Eastern politics. Well, if it relates to Middle Eastern politics, it's relating very directly right now with what's going on in the JCPOA. Because there was an expectation, a pretty reasonable expectation, that the deal would have been finished sometimes earlier this week. But because of a Russian demand that they wanted to make sure that there originally was stated that their trade or what they're doing as part of the JCPA with the Iranians would be protected from the sanctions. But yesterday in the meeting, the Russians essentially said that they wanted all of their trade with Iran to be protected uh, from American sanctions as part of the JCPOA. And that was strongly mm. rejected by the other side. And now the earliest we're expecting that some sort of a breakthrough will happen is next week. So there we've seen very clearly how it has actually set this thing back. And hopefully it will only be a delay and not a collapse, but it could actually lead to something more serious. Okay. But it's also affecting, uh, you know, the broader situation in the Middle East as a whole, because you see that some of the states that the United States refers to as allies, um, at best, technically, they're strategic partners, whether mm. they're good or bad in that, we can have a discussion on. You know, there's been a massive investment in giving them whatever they want. But then when it came to counting on them, right or wrong, for a vote in the Security Council, et cetera, they did not deliver. When it came to pushing more oil out on the markets to reduce oil prices, we see how inflation is going up. They didn't come through. And throughout the Cold War, we were told that, you know, we need to have this relationship with Saudi Arabia because when a crisis happens, we can count on them to help us with oil. Well, a crisis, crisis came and there was no support. So I have so many questions about this. This is a topic that's fascinated me for a really long time. So first of all, one of my criticisms of Biden was that because he said on the campaign trail, look, we're going to hop right back in that Iran deal which is like, it's the most duh thing. You, it's, the, it's a layup. It was one of the signature accomplishments of the Obama administration. Yeah. But they didn't do that. And so, but then you also had the backlash effect that many of us warned would happen, which is because the deal fell apart and the U.S. pulled out of it, um, Hassan Rouhani looked stupid. And so he lost to a hardliner, Raisi. And 
so I remember as soon as he got elected, I was like, well, now there's definitely not going to be any, you know, new agreement. So it looks like I might be wrong about that. So how exactly did this work out now where we're on the verge of an agreement? And why didn't they just jump back in it? I still don't understand why they didn't. Yeah, let's go back there because I think that's a really important question. And particularly if it turns out that the Russians managed to collapse the talks. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but they do have certain ways of doing so. So for instance, what they're doing right now is negotiating what will be then a decision by the Joint Commission. Decisions by the Joint Commission are supposed to be by, uh, unanimous. If the Russians are not part of the consensus, there won't be a decision by the Commission. And mm -hmm. as a result, the decision for the U.S. to come back in and all of those other details will not come through. Um, if the Iranians decide to just strike a deal with the United States, uh, the Russians can actually use the snapback provision in the UN Security Council uh, and reinstore sanctions on Iran through the UN. So they have pathways of sabotaging, would be very costly for them. But if that happens, then truly we will have to reassess the wisdom of not just going back in on mm. day one through an executive order, because it would have evaded all of these different things. I strongly believe that that was a possibility. Uh, the president went back into Paris on day one, uh, World Health Organization, many different things through executive order, not a renegotiation or anything like that. So why didn't they? I believe that the key reasons as to why they didn't was that Biden was really afraid that he would have another big fight with Netanyahu over this issue. Mm. It would be politically costly, and he wanted to see if he could evade that. Uh, and the reason why I think that still was the wrong decision is because Netanyahu was still in power. There was absolutely no indication whatsoever that Netanyahu could be convinced to tone down his opposition, shift it one way or another. Now, let's say that Bennett was prime minister already back then. At least theoretically, you could make the argument. Let's give it a shot. Let's see if there's any way to temper the opposition of the Israelis. But Netanyahu was still there. We had already tried this so many times, but there were people in the Biden team who believed, in my view, quite incorrectly, that if Obama just had been a little bit nicer to Netanyahu, shared more information, et cetera, Netanyahu would not have put up that big fight. I think that's wrong. Moreover, just as a piece of evidence, I think, suggesting um, why this was the wrong track. Uh, when Blinken was in Israel, I, remember, I don't remember exact date, but he had a press conference with Netanyahu. They made an agreement before the press conference not to talk about the JCPOA because they wanted to avoid, you know, Bibi going out there and, and trashing the deal and trashing Biden. They made an agreement. They come out. Press conference begins. No one asks about the JCPOA. But what does Bibi do? He starts talking about the JCPOA mm. and trashing it and trashing Biden, seeking to go back in. So it was very clear. All of that extra hugging was not gonna change Bibi's mm. position. Mm. But because of that belief that there was a way for them to do this, they we essentially wasted two months. And most of the diplomacy in the beginning was not with the Iranians, but rather seeking uh, consultations with Israelis, the Saudis, Emiratis, and hoping that they would um, reduce their opposition. Let me make a couple of more points about this. Yeah. What this did on the Iranian side, I think has been really underestimated in Washington. The Iranians had stayed in the deal mm. for a full year without reducing any of their obligations. After that didn't work because the Europeans did not come through with their promises of creating alternative payment systems. The Iranians started to withdraw from certain aspects of the deal, which is not good at all in any way, shape, or form. And we also saw that they started creating problems in the region, attacking ships, probably behind the attack on the Saudi oil fields, et cetera, to raise the cost for the U.S. to push out all Iranian oil from the uh, international market. But they nevertheless stayed in the deal 
on the hope that the next American president would come to its senses mm. and go back in. Mm. And it was not just hope, because if you look what the Democrats were saying during the primaries, all of them, except for Cory Booker, said that he would go back into the deal. It was even written into the Democratic Party platform that we're going to go back into the deal. So there was everything there to say that, yes, the U.S. will come back in. Now, there were a couple of other noises that probably people were worried about in Tehran, but they probably dismissed it, such as some people close to the Biden administration arguing publicly that it would be wrong not to use by, uh, Trump's sanctions to get a better deal. Hmm. Well, take a, take a step back and try to recognize better what deal, that like... well, <laughs> well, it essentially means adopting the same position as Trump. Because Trump, too, said, I want a better deal, and I'm going to use these sanctions to get a better yeah. deal. Now, so you're you, basically accepting his argument. You're accepting his argument. But also, how could the deal have gotten better? I well, remember going through a with a fine-tooth comb and thinking, it's just saying we give Iran back their own money, right? And, <laughs> and like, we lift the sanctions, and they allow the IAEA in to look at their you know, nuclear capabilities. What could have been better than that? So I think it's an excellent point you're raising because it was actually that very same administration, many of them in this administration now, who went out and in my view, quite correctly in 2015 said, there is no unicorn better deal out there. This is it. So if you said there's no better unicorn deal, uh, uh, why did you go out looking for it? Mm. And by doing so, actually really destroying the little bit of trust that existed. And the Iranians read it as, that the U when Biden starts consulting with the Israelis, they read it as, oh, Biden is going to try to use the sanctions, delay any return in order to make sure that the Iranian economy suffers even more and then try to get a better deal. And early on, the administration did talk about longer and stronger. So what did the Iranians do? They dramatically ramped up their activities uh, and, you know, amassing 60% enriched uranium, all of these different things. They'd be things. crazy not to. Well, they thought that there's right. going to be a negotiation in which they had to have more leverage. Unfortunately, uh, I think in some ways we incentivized them to yeah. do so. Yeah. And then we ended up in this really long haul. Uh, I do believe that the decision, this decision also had an impact on the elections in Iran. Mm. The hardliners in Iran, their argument for the last four years had been, yes, Trump imposed the sanctions, but ultimately this is Rouhani's fault. Why? Because we knew Trump was going to do something like this. We knew that the United States is going to betray the agreement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why yeah. did Rouhani put all of his eggs in just that JCPOA basket? Mm. It's his fault because he didn't have a plan B. He didn't have a plan C. They hammered it, hammered and hammered it. And then, of course, they cheated in the elections by not l allowing any, you know, prominent people to run against. But what really is fascinating is to see why people sat out, the, the number, the degree to which people sat out that election. Oh, really? In 2017, Rouhani was actually running for re-election. His opponent was Raisi. Raisi got about 15 million votes, okay? Rouhani got 24. Landslide victory done in the first uh, round. 2021, four years later... Raisi gets about 17 million votes, hmm. only 2 million votes more. Hmm. But the candidate that is supposed to essentially carry on Rouhani's legacy, the centrist uh, slash reformist, got 4 million votes. Wow. 20 million people who were not convinced that Raisi is better, but appear to have been convinced that the centrist and the reformist approach, which is Iran's problems can be resolved by making peace with the West, making a deal with the United States, they essentially had lost hope mm. that that is possible and they stayed home. Had there been an early re-entry into the JCPA on day one, 
and the economic benefit had started to flow again, people would likely have thought Trump was an aberration. Yeah. U.S. can be trusted. The oh, JCP look, will work. Worn out. Yeah. Exactly. And they would likely have gone out, held their noses, probably not been happy about the options, but nevertheless done something to prevent Raisi from becoming president. Yeah. And here we are. And so wow. uh, this is also very relevant because um, obviously we're talking a lot about sanctions these days. Mm. And there's a big question of how effective sanctions have been as a tool of coercion in the uh, U.S.'s <clears throat> playbook over the history of their use. And one of the sort of disputed examples is Iran, and not just under Trump, but do you think that sanctions were effective in bringing the Iranians to the table? No. I think this is a very common held view in Washington. It's actually interesting the way you put it, though, because I think many people know that it was not effective in getting a deal, so they narrow it and mm. say it was effective in getting, getting them to the, to the, to the table. table. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the real question is, you know, was it effective in getting a deal? And let me give you a bit of a background of what actually happened. Um, and the chronology of this is really, really fascinating. What happened in the secret negotiations in Oman is what, in, in my view, reveals what truly brought about this deal. So the U.S. and Iran were at it, you know, the, after Obama's first attempt at diplomacy in 2009 that failed rather quickly. They gave up. They went down the sanctions path. The Iranians responded to sanctions the way the Russians are responding today, the way the Iranians responded to Biden and to Trump, which is to their counterpressure is to just advance their nuclear program. For every new sanctions, another thousand centrifuges. For every new sanctions, you know, 500 kilos more of uh, low enriched uranium. So when Obama came in, the Iranians had 1,500 kilos of low enriched uranium, which is roughly enough for one nuclear weapon. We went down the sanctions path and essentially there was a competition. Could the United States cripple Iran's economy faster and force them to capitulate? Or could the Iranians present the United States with a nuclear fait accompli faster and as a result, essentially get away with it? Um, and in this competition, you know, the U.S. imposes some of the strongest sanctions on the Iranians. The Iranians are hurting, without a doubt. I mean, their economy is contracting. Uh, very, very difficult time, but they're not breaking. They're continuing to advance. So by January 2013, something happened that changed everything. Exactly a year earlier, the Iranian breakout capability, according to U.S. intelligence, was 12 months, which meant that if they had made a decision to build a bomb, which they have not, but if they had made it, it would take them 12 months to have enough material for a bomb. January 2013, according to Leon Panetta, Iran's breakout capability had shrunk to eight weeks, mm. which meant that Iran's nuclear clock was ticking faster than Obama's sanctions clock. Mm. If the United States continued on that same path of just sanctioning and thinking that that's going to break Iran and uh, resolve the issue, Obama realized if he stayed on that course, he would soon only have two options. Either accept Iran as a de facto nuclear power because the sanctions are not going to break them or go to war. <laughs> Unless he could change things up. And that's what he did. Mm. So three months later in Oman, a second meeting and the secret negotiations were held. This time around, instead of setting two mid-level people that no one knew anything about, one of them was back then Jake Sullivan, who of course was mm -hmm. not a, a very known person back then. Mm -hmm. This time around, they sent Bill Burns, number two at the State Department, and a whole set of nuclear experts. And most importantly, for the very first time, the American diplomats were armed with something they were not even allowed to touch before, which was an acceptance of Iran's red line. 
accepting enrichment on Iranian soil under restrictions and other uh, circumstances. This is the first time the U.S. ever offered that. In fact, in the previous call uh, meeting in July 2012, that's all the Iranians were pushing for, an acceptance of enrichment. And the U.S. said no to all of that. They, the, the negotiators didn't have an authority. Mm. That's what broke the negotiations. Now, if sanctions were so effective, why did the United States give the first major concession? Mm. Moreover, if we had accepted enrichment back in 2003 when the Iranians offered a grand bargain to the Bush administration that they dismissed, the Iranians had 164 centrifuges back then. By the time we had the JCPOA, the Iranians had 22,000. Mm. We could have stopped it back then. No sanctions at all. 2005, the Iranians give a proposal of 3,000, stopping at 3,000 centrifuges. We didn't even respond then either. Mm. All we had to do was to accept enrichment. We refused. We refused to accept enrichment for 15 years and better on sanctions. And the deal we ended up getting is less than what we could have gotten in 2003, 2005 without any of these sanctions. So when we assess whether sanctions are effective or not, we have to assess also what has been the alternative cost. Mm. Because our analysis tend to be so simplistic, is like, well, we impose sanctions, something happened, it must have been because of the sanctions, right? right. Mm -hmm. What else could it possibly have been? Don't, don't they have a right under international law to enrich for um, energy for the population and to enrich for uh, scientific research? Isn't that something that's the case already under international law? So when the U.S. was trying to say, like, you can't even have that, isn't that like, you know essentially just like bully behavior? It is not compatible with international law to deny them enrichment, yes. Right. Uh, enrichment is not explicitly stated in the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Article 4 says that countries have a right to, to develop nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. Right, yeah. But in the negotiations about the NPT, it's very clear enrichment was included. Furthermore, standard American law is that if it's not explicitly excluded, it is included. So since it doesn't exclude enrichment, Standard American reading of international law is that it is actually accepted. Mm. Now, that is also the view of the majority of countries in the, in the world. But the Bush administration adopted a new line, which essentially said, if you have enrichment, you can have it. If you don't have it, or if we don't recognize that you're getting it, you can't have, can't it. have it. So, and, and that's why this ended up becoming such a mm. big issue. Now, you can make a strong argument from a non-proliferation uh, perspective that it's actually better to prevent more countries from getting enrichment technology because if they have it, it increases the risk that they could go nuclear. And a world where we have more nuclear power is probably not a better one. So from a non-proliferation perspective, I can understand that argument. From a legal perspective, mm. we don't have much of a case. Right. So what happened then? The hardliners are elected. I know we were all fearful that that meant basically the end of the, the possibility of this deal. But here we are right now, potentially on the precipice of rejoining, reentering the deal. So what were those internal political dynamics like in Iran that brought us to this place? So I think the Iranians, even the hardliners wanted it. I think from, it's actually kind of similar to Trump. Raisi wants a deal. He just wants to be able to say that he got a better, better deal, deal than Rouhani. <laughs> and, and Trump wanted a deal. They didn't need to be better. He just needed to be able to say it Spin was it better. better. <laughs> Spin yeah. it as better. Yeah. So they want a deal because at the end of the day, they need to get out of the sanctions. But perhaps most importantly, the deal normalizes Iran. Mm. If you don't have a deal, then Iran is under UN sanctions, which means that in Iranian perspective, the terminology they use is that they are securitized. Everything that comes to dealing with them is going to be seen through the prism of the nuclear issue. Like Russia today, you can have a conversation about, um, I heard that recently, apparently, uh, uh, Tchaikovsky 
a concert is canceled no, because it would yeah. be insensitive. So you, you see the reality then. Everything is seen from the prism of that one conflict. So they need to get out of the nuclear deal. They want that. Um, uh, but we lost a lot of time because the Iranians now under his uh, presidency took about five months before they came back to the table saying that they're trying to figure out what their new strategy is. I think it's fair to say that it wasn't necessarily a new strategy they were looking for. They were actually further expanding their nuclear program uh, and, in their view, strengthening their position uh, for a negotiation. And then they came in with very, very aggressive opening bids that almost broke the negotiations as well. But bottom line is the two sides want this. They, they still benefit from it. And they have complicated matters, but we also really complicated matters by not just going back in. And I think the onus is more on us because we're the ones who left the agreement. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Not the other side. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, in some other cases, you know, Biden apologized for leaving, uh, for U.S. leaving um, Paris. There's been no such kind of acknowledgement yeah, that and th this is kind of our mess up and we're trying to fix it now. The language has very much been like the Iranians know what they must do. Mm. That, that's not helpful. So, so let me ask you this. Um, we see a lot of stuff happening now in the news as a, as a second-order consequence of what's happening uh, with Russia and Ukraine. And so just yesterday we learned there was a two-hour meeting between high-level U.S. diplomats and Maduro and the top of the Venezuelan government. And come to find out, they released two American prisoners right after that. Now, we know because uh, we're, we just took an 8% hit to our oil and our energy here that we're probably trying to fill that gap. And so we're going to them and we're like, hey, you want to make a deal now? Yeah. So first of all, I actually like that development because you have potential for some sort of a, a realignment here as well. Now, you know, I don't, whatever you think of the Venezuelan government, there are going to be no Venezuelan terror attack in the United States. And they're not even a threat to their neighbors. If anything, you could say, you know, whatever, the Maduro government is a threat domestically to their own population. And I, I look at what's happening now potential realignment where we make some sort of deal with Venezuela. Uh, Saudi Arabia just spitting in Biden's face, basically, by saying like, oh, you want, you. Yeah, you want us to, to send you more oil and, and lower the price? How about no, because we didn't like the thing you said about Khashoggi or whatever. Like, and even worse, I mean, in the interview in, in The Atlantic, I think uh, MBS said something, I don't care what Biden thinks. Right. So, I mean, that's just like, I'm, I'm the boss here. That's what he's trying to do. And so... Then we enter into the conversation, this idea of like a quote unquote natural ally, right? And Iran, from my perspective, was always more of a natural ally for a number of reasons. I mean, when you look at 9-11, for example, in the war on terror, who was the target in the war on terror? The target in the war on terror was the Salafi jihadists, was this extremist Sunni fundamentalist ideology. They're the ones who were doing the terror attacks. Iran's a Shia nation. There ain't gonna be no Iranian terror attacks here, right? So you have this more of a natural ally do you foresee the potential of a true realignment here where all of a sudden we have allies um, in Venezuela? I saw, I saw an article in, what was it, Reuters this morning that was basically like, Looks like Maduro's embracing capitalism. A lot of people are going back to... Bloomberg, actually. It was Bloomberg, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The so, real voice of capital. So do you see the beginnings of that? Because obviously you have China, Russia potentially Saudi Arabia, maybe even India, you throw in as like, now there's, we're 
getting more distant from them and they're forming this axis and they won't even necessarily condemn the invasion of Ukraine, et cetera. Israel hasn't been amazing there either, by the way. Yeah, I, yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Well, you guys got to stop occupying <laughs> land that's not yours. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but, but also, yeah. you know, when the Ukrainians asked for the Iron Dome and the U.S. wanted to offer it, Israelis said no. Oh, I didn't mm. know yeah, that. Yeah, so that is, that is a joint project between wow. the United States and Israel. U.S. pays for it. Mm. But to share it, they have to have consensus. The Israelis voted no, which they did, obviously, because they are also very close to the Russians. Right. They cannot do what they're doing in Syria without Russian right. improvement. That's right. So it's, it's a messy situation. But to take your question, um, I think, in general, the compatibility between Iran and the United States is far superior. If you take a look at society, values of people, et cetera, uh, and also geostrategic interests to a certain extent, more compatible. I don't think it's gonna happen under this regime in Iran, mm -hmm. nor I think there's gonna be any American president that will go for an alliance. I don't think alliance is in the card, and I don't think that's a problem. The United States should not have these type of alliances in yeah, the Middle relative East. Relative neutrality not, is yeah, a good idea. We should have decent functional relationship with all of these states and not be vulnerable to their pressure mm -hmm. or susceptible to, um, uh, or, or be in a position in which we constantly have to defer to them. We are deferring to the Saudis all the time. The Saudis are doing what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, the Saudis are doing Yemen. in Yemen. And we're paying for it, we're helping them. It's unacceptable. Uh, but should we switch back to being to the way it was with the Shah, in which, you know, there was a lot of deference to the Iranians back then? Yeah. I don't think that serves U.S. interests. What we need to do is not necessarily realignment, but disentanglement mm. from alliances that are actually not serving U.S. interests and, frankly, also not serving stability in the region. There's an opportunity for that here. I agree. Here's where our conversation earlier on about what happened in the early months of the JCPOA probably dashes the hopes with some form of realignment that could include Iran. If you take a look at what happened back in 2015, when the deal was struck, the Iranians were dancing on the streets, um, Biden and, uh, sorry, uh, Kerry and um, uh, Zarif were talking to each other. In fact, Kerry had spent more time with Zarif than any other foreign minister. Mm. So there was a strong um, channel that had been created, which was very handy because when 10 or 11 American sailors accidentally drifted into Iranian waters in the Persian Gulf a couple of days before the implementation of the JCPOA. That would have been a major crisis under mm. normal circumstances. It was resolved in 16 hours through five phone calls between Zarif and Kerry. Mm. It showed that this deal had the potential of changing the trajectory of U.S.-Iran relations. Not necessarily an alliance, but something much better than what it had been in the previous 35 years. I fear that because of the manner in which these negotiations have taken place, and I, I want to emphasize this, I think Rob Malley has probably done an absolutely astounding job given a bad strategy. It's mm. not him who decides the strategy, but I think the mere fact that we managed to get to this point is still very positive. Had it not been Rob Malley, probably wouldn't have worked out. Had it been a better strategy, we would be in a much better situation. But given all of that, you know, I think there was, rather than a, a negotiation that built more trust, we've had a trust depleting exercise. Now the two sides are going into this deal grudgingly. They need it, but they're grudgingly going into it. There's no uh, expectation on either side that mm -hmm. this deal will last more than three years. Mm. And the psychological impact of that is that both sides are probably going to prepare themselves. They're going to act on that 
idea and as a result probably make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. I fear that the next three years are likely going to be used to prepare themselves for what they believe is an inevitable showdown in 2025, particularly, of course, if there's a Republican president. And, and let me give you one reason as to why this has been so bad. Um, the Biden administration has made it clear to the Iranians they cannot make any promise that outlives this administration. Now, we're asking of the Iranians, paragraph one in the JCPOA, they are permanently giving up any ambition for nuclear weapons. Permanently. Not limited to uh, Rouhani or to Zarif or to Raisi. Permanently. But we're telling the Iranians, whatever we are promising, you can count on it for three years. Because we cannot tie the hands of the next American president. Right. The argument actually has been, we can't do so because we're a democracy. That's the worst argument for democracy I've ever heard. <laughs> right. yeah. You know, yeah, essentially no. saying we are inherently untrustworthy yeah. and unreliable. Yeah. Because of this, both sides are not expecting that this is not going to last that long. Mm. So the potential that existed before to make it a transformational relationship that could work in that realignment, I fear at most will end up being that this deal will be a respite, a pause in the hostilities mm. while preparing for the next next showdown. And I think that is a major loss. Could have been avoided if we had done the right thing from the outset. Yeah, yeah. that's that's really unfortunate. Trump um, ruined it, honestly. Just pulling out of the Paris Agreement, pulling out of the Iranian Agreement. Like, he just pulled out of it. And then, like you said, everybody's going to turn around and be like, why should we ever make a deal with you? Well, ever? especially when it's very possible we end up with Trump in the White House again. <sighs> I mean, you know, it's very logical to look at that state of affairs. Oh, he's just going to do the same thing all over again. Put yourself in MBS's shoes. He's looking at this. He's looking at what's likely going to happen in the midterms. He probably thinks or bets that Biden is going to be a lame duck in six months mm -hmm. and I'm going to be replaced with a Republican mm -hmm. in 2025. And 2025, there will be a Republican president in the United States, he thinks, and Putin will still be president of Russia. Mm. So under those circumstances, he's making his calculations the way that he has. Right. That's right. And, and, and this again... My view is not that, oh, we should be upset with him. We should be upset with him in a lot of different things. But he's actually acting based on an analysis of how things will look like and pursue what he believes is his interest. I wish we did the same. We're not. Right. We're, yeah. we're deferring to them and these alliances instead of actually putting American U.S. interest, uh, national interest at the center of our uh, foreign policy. For too long, our policy in the Middle East has been essentially to, well, what do our allies think we should do? Mm. And so what do you think that that policy would look like specifically vis-a-vis -vis the Saudis? Well, vis-a-vis -vis the Saudis, it would be uh, we would not be supporting uh, their illegal war uh, in uh, mm. Yemen. We would pull the plug on it and we could do so very easily. I was just looking at the numbers before I came here. It's really sad. The Biden narrative has been that we now have to defend the Saudis and the Emiratis because of an increase in cross-border attacks. Defend them. By, by <laughs> defend the them. The data simply doesn't support it. The Houthis have been on an offensive inside of Yemen. But when it comes to their attacks on Saudi, it's actually been flat. What has increased since summer of last year, late summer last year, is a dramatic increase of Saudi and Emirati attacks on Yemen, uh, while the Ye uh, Yemeni attacks on Saudi have essentially been flat. Mm. So the narrative that this is, we have to defend them against this increase, it's just simply not true. So why are they saying it? I think what happened in the NSC uh, and uh, in the administration is that they, I think the Biden team actually originally were more inclined to do what they promised to do, which is, you know, 
show the world that Saudi Arabia is a pariah and the war in Yemen. But then uh, things got complicated. They looked at it and they kind of concluded that the United States is going to be in this competition with the Chinese. Uh, and that competition is not going to take place over Taiwan or some rocks in the South China Sea. That competition is going to take place in Africa, in Middle East, mm. in Latin America. And the strongest asset the U.S. has, their analysis was, in this competition with the Chinese is that we have this alliance system. So we have to retain the alliance system in order to keep uh, be able to compete with the Chinese. What does that mean in Middle East? It means you start being even more deferential to the mm. Saudis to keep them happy so they stay on your side vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis China. Now, here's the interesting part. I do wonder what has happened to that analysis in the last 10 days mm. in the sense that, you know, whether you agree with what Biden has done or not on Russia, I have to say, though, this is a rather impressive feat, being able to coordinate this number of countries and impose this degree of sanctions on one country so fast. It took years for the Iranians to be sanctioned as much as they were. And they were the most sanctioned country up until a couple of days ago. Wow. In five days, Russia is the most sanctioned country in the world. It took only five days. Again, whether you agree with it or not, that is not an easy thing to pull off. Um, bureaucratically, diplomatically, politically. And almost all of the other allies the U.S. has called on have essentially answered, except for one region, the Middle East. So as we are now in the path of giving more to these countries, hugging them more in the idea that they will stand with us against China, well, the test came with Russia, and they didn't. So it will be really fascinating to see if the White House now starts rethinking that strategy as a whole, perhaps go back to what Biden said in February 2021, we have to end this war and, you know, we're going to make Saudi the pariah that they are. It would be fascinating. I'm not holding my breath, but I'm saying there's a moment in which we may end up doing so because sure enough, we're <laughs> saying uh, that Maduro is apparently a capitalist now and totally kosher. <laughs> Um, I think the U.S. definitely wants to get this deal as fast as possible because getting Iranian oil back onto the market would also help push down prices. But we don't seem to be counting on the Saudis and the Emiratis. And that should have a consequence. My fear is that we'll just go back and pretend as if nothing yeah. happened. So rallying the world like you just described that Biden did, what do you think that's a function of? Because when I look at that, especially all the European nations immediately falling in line, like it makes me feel like it's more about self-preservation than anything else because they just look at what Putin did to Ukraine and they're like, how do we know Poland's not next? How do we know whatever, fill in the blank with whatever country's mm -hmm. not next? So do you think it's that or do you think it actually has a lot more to do with behind the scenes, a lot of negotiation? And So your, your question kind of presumes that they didn't, you know, that there's like either or. They had an interest to do so or they didn't. I agree with you. I think many of them probably thought that they had an interest in doing so. Still, having the interest and then coordinating so fast this large number of really economically costly sanctions to yourselves. Mm. I mean, the Europeans are going to pay a very heavy price for these Germany sanctions. Germany with the gas. Uh, yeah, exactly. Absurd. That takes a tremendous amount of diplomatic finesse. And again, whether you agree with it or not, I don't. I, uh, let me be very clear. I think what Russia is doing in Ukraine is no different to what the United States did in Iraq. Mm. It's an illegal war of aggression. There should be a cost and a price to pay for, and it should be stopped. However, I'm not so sold on the idea that sanctions is going to be some sort of a miracle thing that works, that will work this thing out because uh, the literature is quite clear in this. Sanctions actually is an escalatory step that tends to increase the likelihood of war. 
Right. You enter into that cycle thinking perhaps that this is an alternative to war, <laughs> but statistically it actually increases the likelihood that you will be in war. One. Two, your likelihood of lifting those sanctions are very, very small. Right. And you end up having long-term sanctions that destroy countries and societies. So, you know, and particularly with these sanctions, it's not entirely clear what the Russians would have to do in order to get them lifted. That's one of the main problems. Yeah. That's one of the exactly. main problems. And the Russians, I, at least Putin, I'm certain, does not believe that these will be lifted anyway. So it's actually not incentivizing him right. to shift gear anyways because he doesn't believe that they will be lifted. And the Iran case is actually a really, really horrible example in that, in the sense that there the United States actually did lift the sanctions, tried to lift sanctions. But the lingering effect of the sanctions were such that businesses were still not going into Iran wow. because they were afraid that the U.S. That would do back. exactly what Trump did. Oh, my God. Now, so you tell me how long, do you, even if sanctions are lifted, it's going to take a while before international businesses and investors go back into Russia because of, A, fearing that this conflict is not solved in a, uh, in a stable way. And secondly, you know, um, if if we can just grab other countries' assets the way we're doing right now, it's also going to increase the likelihood that people are not going to want to have their assets in various places. That's an argument, mm -hmm. too, and you should comment on this, too. It seems like an argument of against um, the dollar as the world reserve currency because if you keep country after country, you know, you decide we're basically going to cut you off from the global finance system when you do something that we don't like, even if it's genuinely condemnable, that's when you start to think maybe you get some rumblings between Russia and China and perhaps India and some others where they're Iran, where they're like, maybe we should have a different world reserve currency because these guys are being a little too strict with it. And it's and yeah. then you start to wonder as because as soon as the US is no as soon as the dollar is no longer the world reserve currency, that is game set match on the, the yeah, empire it, it's, for it's, sure. Yeah. And, and you're already seeing it. Uh, the Russians developed their own SWIFT system years ago. Mm -hmm. The Chinese have as well. They're talking about connecting it. More and more countries are going to be trading in non-dollars because um, if we can just go and sanction central banks and grab their assets, mm -hmm. um, uh, and those would be usually in dollars, and that's going to be an additional risk that they will have to take into account. So I think what we're seeing is... is um, a confusion of priorities here uh, and, and a confusion of also what will the cost of this be? Because people are talking a lot about the energy prices going up and certainly they have mm -hmm. and they will continue to go up if this crisis continues. What we have talked less about is cost of food. Right. I mean, Ukraine is a massive food producer. It's actually providing grain for almost the entire Middle East. Russia is, I think, the third largest food producer. A lot of that is going to stop now and we're going to start seeing, forget about people being ticked off having to pay $2 extra the gallon when they're uh, uh, pumping gas into their cars. Price of cornflakes may double as wow. a result of this. What's going to happen then politically here as well as in Europe? Did we think this through of, you know, how do we avoid this so that this actually doesn't push us into a global recession? Again, not an argument that there shouldn't be a consequence for a country uh, illegally invading another and doing what Russia is doing right now. I, I certainly believe there should be. But um, there were opportunities, in my view, that were not exhausted in preventing this altogether. And secondly, once we're down this path, how do we deal with some of these other consequences? Right. That we are just inescapable. We have to think it through. It's not necessarily an argument not to do so. But did we think this through? Do we have a plan on how to deal with this? Right. And that's what we've been reflecting a lot on is that there's this sort of frenzy 
So things that seemed unthinkable just a few weeks ago are now just, they're done. I mean, mm-hmm. it was considered the most extreme fringe to mm-hmm. kick them out of the SWIFT banking system just mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And now that's done and we've gone so much further than that. And the other piece of this is, you know, to your, you're laying out the sort of tactical strategic case that the sanctions aren't going to deliver what you ultimately want them to. And in fact, you are probably making it more likely that we enter into a broader war. But there's also the moral case, which is, mm. you know, the Russian people, this isn't their fault. Yeah. They didn't, you know, they didn't want this. There's Russians that are bravely protesting in the street Absolutely. right now against the war. And this is going to be, of course, nothing like what the Ukrainians are suffering, but this is going to be very devastating for them as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you cannot, on the one hand, say that Putin is a dictator that only listens to six people and then sanction millions of Russians that right. you have said have no, no say, say in this. Mm-hmm. Right. It is collective punishment. There is a... There is a frenzy. There is a um, consensus moving in this direction of thinking of sanctions as some sort of solution, which is actually quite fascinating because just weeks ago, I felt that there was a moment in which finally this love affair with sanctions was starting to break up in Washington. And that was because of what we were doing to the Afghan people mm. yeah. by you know, taking their central bank uh, funds that now belong to the Afghan people. It's not the Taliban, it's the Afghan people's money. Uh, and then we decided to give half of it to the victims, uh, some victims of the 9-11 uh, uh, terrorist attacks. Many of the victims of the 9-11 terrorist attack decided not to be part of that lawsuit, by the way. Good. Yeah, yeah I've seen a number yeah. come out and condemn yeah. the idea. Exactly. Of this Ridiculous. Thing. This yeah. is their money. This yeah. isn't for but us. But this opened up a conversation about talking about what are we doing with these sanctions and how is it impacting innocent people? And that just went away because of what the Russians did and, and the frenzy that came afterwards. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. You know, what are, this is maybe, this is an easy question for you, but I just want to hear your thoughts on it. The Afghan example is such a potent one because you had this one little window where the media cared so much about what was happening in Afghanistan and were very concerned Mm -hmm. about Afghan civilians. This is after years of them really not giving a shit. (laughs) And then as soon as we were gone and that was over, now that we are involved in sparking a mass famine and crisis, suddenly they don't care again. The Afghan civilians, you know, they're not paying any attention. It was a very instructive moment of how selective that compassion is. Yes. And you see that, I mean, we're talking about what's happening in Yemen, which Mm. is considered the worst humanitarian crisis right now on the planet, which we're complicit in. And the victims of of that atrocity are every bit as deserving of compassion as what's happening in Ukraine. And that's completely left off the table as well. So what's sort of the paradigm for what the media decides is worthy of our compassion and what's not? I wish I had an answer. You said it was an easy question. <laughs> I don't know why you said it was an easy question. Um, I do think there is something um, in general when it takes when it comes to uh, how to put this diplomatically. <laughs> there's significant differences in the demographics of the United States when it comes to these issues. When you take a look at younger people, they're clearly not in favor of an interventionist, militaristic foreign policy. The shift is remarkable. Yeah. Uh, it's also remarkable because you see that a majority of American youth, uh, 20 to 30 years old, don't believe in American exceptionalism, which was like the cornerstone mm. of what the generation 60 and up believe. Um, so I think there's clear evidence that you were seeing how some of these things were shifting and would inevitably make it more difficult for the United States, at least politically, to engage in the type of militaristic interventionist foreign policy that we've seen in the last 20 years. 
But then there's something else, which is the media class seems to be the last standing bastion that truly <laughs> believes uh, in, in the idea that the United States, uh, that, that American hegemony at the end of the day is what saves the world from complete anarchy. Mm. Uh, and you see it with what the Russians have done as well. A lot of people arguing that, well, this is evidence that we need to be the unipolar power, et cetera. Otherwise, we're going to see more of this. Well, if the argument is that we have to be strong in order to prevent things like this, which is actually an argument that I can, I can buy into, it, it begs the question, why are we not strong? Is it potentially because of the 20 years of interventions that you advocated for that we actually lost the strength to actually be able to have a deterrence and a balance that would make it more costly and cause countries to think twice about doing some of these things? Another component of it would also be that we wouldn't do it ourselves because if we do it ourselves, it unfortunately opens the door for others to do it. Uh, But it's stunning to me to even see that in Congress, you have people like Marco Rubio saying that a no-fly zone is not a good idea. Right. <laughs> Did not expect that coming from Marco Rubio. Yeah, me either. Yeah. But a lot of journalists and folks on TV and anchors are still pushing that idea. Yeah. That's right. It's yeah. really fascinating that, you know, some of the hardest hawks in Congress have kind of woken up to the dangers of such an idea. But it's almost as if there's just no accountability at all for what some journalists are saying or they're, what they're tweeting. So it's okay for them to do so. Or do you actually genuinely believe it? I, I think I know why. Because they, a lot of these people in the media, they have sources in the intelligence agencies. And whatever those intelligence agencies tell them, they, they're stenographers. They'll just put whatever it is that they say. And we know that some of the hawkish people who believe most in the Cold War mentality are in the intelligence agencies. And so what you guys are accurately pointing out is that the the most hawkish and bellicose and neoconservative voices in this entire discussion are in the media because <laughs> the and, and it's liberals. across the board. Yeah. It's true, it's across the board because I remember on the no fly zone discussion, <laughs> Boris Johnson came out and was like, I can't do it. Somebody was <laughs> chastising him, basically like, Look, these kids are dying. Like, how could you not do it? He's like, That's World War Three. What do you want me to tell you? Jen Psaki said the same thing. Joe Biden said the same thing. Marco Rubio said the same thing. But the media yeah. is in unison, like yeah, we got to do it. We got to do more. Yeah. It's left very open-ended. Yeah. And so then you end up with, you know, a population where it's like 74% is like yes to no fly zone, which well, is it, it, terrible. It they don't even know what it means. Yeah. I, I would not take that poll seriously, yeah, though, they don't because, know what it means. <laughs> I mean, you you get people probably 74 to 80% saying that they like ice cream as well. There's no consequence to what you say to that question because it wasn't it was completely decontextualized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you want World yeah. War III should have exactly. been the question. And everybody would Russia like, what? is a <laughs> nuclear power. Right. We would have literally World War III. It would be a nuclear war. Are you in favor of it? I'm pretty confident that the numbers would be much, I much lower. I think it would be a little yeah. different if it was framed that what way. I is, <laughs> what I think is fascinating, though, is why did the media run with a poll like that? Knowing very well how flawed that question was, mm. they still ran with it and, and, and made it a point. Well, That's the issue. There's disturbing. a concept in you know political campaigning called mm. the push poll. Mm. You know where you ask yes. the question that usually what they do is they'll say like, "Congress, if Congressman so and so was caught in this scandal, would that change your mind about <laughs> you know about it, voting for that?" To McCain. Yeah, that's that to McCain, exactly so right. <laughs> what if you learned to, that McCain had an illegitimate black child or something? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it sort of leads people in the direction that you want them to be led, and then yeah. in this case 
case, they can publish publish the results exactly. of like, you know, exactly. look, the public wants to do more and we're yeah. not doing enough. I saw uh, it was like two dozen plus, quote unquote, foreign policy experts signing on to a letter in favor of a no-fly zone. And what's scary about that situation is, you know, I don't have a lot of confidence in the elected folks in this town to withstand what they're going to look at that and say, oh, there's a political opportunity for me yeah. to make a name for myself by pushing this position that is broadly popular. And that's what's that's what makes me nervous, especially in this climate where things are, you know, that were off the table are suddenly on the table and suddenly executed before anyone even thinks about it. Yeah. Um, that letter, I think, was signed by 28 people in D.C. Um, there's plenty of folks in, in um the think tanks. If I were on their side, I would not have published it because the numbers were so low. Mm, actually 28 is not impressive. It's not an impressive number. <laughs> I think there's going to be another letter coming out soon, taking an opposite position. I suspect it will have far more signers. All right. Little so that's not it. I have come. to say, I want to be very clear. I'm not defending the blob here. Please <laughs> do not <laughs> misunderstand me on that. I think I'm quite clear on, on where I stand on the blob. But I would make that point to show actually even in that community, it is not a popular idea, which makes the media elite all the more isolated in pushing it. Yeah. Can I, I want to ask you too about picking up on some of the conversation about the Iraq war and, you know, some genuine hypocrisy that we've shown. And even in this conversation about, okay, we're going to ban Russian oil, but we're going to up our Beg reliance Saudi on for Saudi. More. Like, are they better? Aren't they, you know, also committing these human rights atrocities? How does that very clear hypocrisy also hurt our position and standing? Because one of the things that Putin has consistently weaponized against us in this, he's, you know, claiming, oh, the Ukrainians have, the Ukrainians have WMD yeah. in a way to, you know, throw Iraq back <laughs> or, in Or they're using hospitals to, uh, you know, to hide soldiers, et cetera. Same kind of uh, excuses that the Israelis have been using to bomb in Gaza. Right. Yeah. So you see the way that our own failings and hypocrisy are sort of thrown back in our face in this conflict, does that significantly um, impact our standing and our ability to sort of... It, it certainly does. It may outcome. not look as if it does it in this moment. Uh, and I think in this moment probably hasn't done much because at the end of the day, you know, take a look at the votes in the GA. And at the end of the day, most countries are looking at what Russia is doing, don't like it, and they want to vote against it. And they did. Doesn't mean that they're happy with the hypocrisy. They're right. hoping, yeah. they're hoping that the compassion we've shown for the Ukrainians will then also be translated into compassion for the Palestinians, for the Yemenis, right. etc. Mm -hmm. Denying the compassion for the Ukrainians is not a strategy of making sure that people care about everyone oh, else who is uh, mm -hmm. of uh, a victim in all of this. Uh, I think the, the way it really will impact it in the longer run is, however, that we are clearly in a moment in which there's going to be a redefinition, whether it's, it's just a realignment, but perhaps goes further. We're clearly in a multipolar world. This mm. is a moment that's just made that clear. It's no longer a theoretical thing. It's there. Um, and we have been talking, the Biden administration has been talking a lot about a rules-based order <laughs> and that we're upholding it. In my view, the rules-based order mostly have been an order in which we rule. Mm -hmm. um, and now we see the consequences of actually having more countries completely disregard international law. This is a very bad thing also for the United States, and particularly if we're not willing to go to war with them, which we shouldn't, they're nuclear powers. It's, you know, it really demonstrates the importance of being able to have a normative system. It's not unbreakable, clearly, but it does provide a degree of protection. What happened before the Russia invasion, I thought was quite concerning because 
the administration was talking a lot about the rules-based order, but at the UN, it was signaling that it was not a UN-centric rules-based order. Mm. So if it's not a UN-centric rules-based order, what is it centered on? If it's centered on American power, well, then it's the same thing that Trump talked about. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. And if it's centered on American power, we're just going to incentivize China and others to say, well, we're not going to be part of a new order that doesn't even have the pretense of those rules, but is only centered on American power. And we're going to be deep into a really destructive competition. So I hope that what comes out of all of this is that we recognize that a rules-based order, far from perfect, but a true rules-based order, not what we've had in the last decade or so, actually ultimately serves our interests as well in a multipolar world. It may have been different when we thought that we were the unipolar power, but in a multipolar world, it serves our interests as well. And for us to uphold it, we have to abide by the rules far more than mm. we have in the past. Yeah, you know, it, it's people want there to actually be international law that matters, that's enforced, yeah. that means something. But yeah, I mean, it, to your point before, I covered a story of a Russian official who said, you know, it talked about how he was asked like, hey, kids are dying. Like, are you okay with that? And he was like, well, a lot of kids died in Afghanistan. And he tried to throw it back in their face like yeah. the U.S. hypocrisy. But like it didn't, no, what about it? But it didn't yeah. work at all because, you know, the the fact of the matter is, yeah, the answer is it was terrible when we did it and it's terrible when you do it. They were trying to use it as like, so no, we, it's okay so we now. get to do yeah, it. Now yeah. we get to do it. And that's, you know, that's just, nobody's really buying that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I don't sense that at all in the air. Do you? Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, the other thing I wanted to get from mm. you, because there's a lot of speculation in this regard, there's um, a lot of reporting that suggests, you know, China had just said to the, our friendship is limitless or whatever mm. their their language was that they may have had some heads up that this invasion, at least some version of it, was coming. And they said, just wait till after the Olympics, please. <laughs> and then I guess you're good to go. And that now there's been such backlash against Russia, and this hasn't gone particularly well for Russia, that they're uncomfortable in the position that they find themselves in and have sort of changed the tone of their rhetoric and are trying to figure out how to thread the needle. What is your assessment of how they are reading this entire situation? Not an expert on China uh, in any way, shape, or form. So, so take this with a grain of salt. I was under the impression that they were a bit frustrated with Russia in the sense that they did not were not given a heads up. They may have told the Russians to cool it. We don't want to see any ex escalation of tensions, but in the sense that the Russians had this plan. But it seems also that the U Russian military didn't know their, this plan existed. Yeah. When you take a look at their performance and how they've done, et cetera, it doesn't seem like this was, was a well-planned uh, uh, military um, uh, um, uh, endeavor, exercise yeah. endeavor. But I do think that the, uh, the Chinese are probably looking at the situation and, and are starting to feel that, uh, on the, that they're in a quite a difficult situation. On the one hand, the Russians are starting to potentially become a baggage and a burden for them. Right. Because of what they're doing uh, and because of the cost they're paying for it. Uh, on the other hand, they're also seeing that if the United States is going to go, you know, three steep steps deeper into this division of the world between democracies and authoritarians, well, and, and everything else that is happening, uh, the Chinese are probably thinking, well, after Russia, they're next. Uh, because we're seeing a reinvigoration of NATO, all of these different things. So I think they're probably in, in a tough position right now and, and trying to figure out how do they win as much time as possible. 
because their game altogether has been they want to be able to be a, a great power, at least in their own neighborhood. I don't think we can definitively say that they have ambitions for being a global great power, but they know that time has been on their side. And the longer they wait, the stronger their cards will be. If what has happened between U.S. and Russia forces a confrontation between China and Russia, uh, China and the United States sooner, that's not going to be good for them. So I think they're going to be pushing back and trying to make sure that they, they can, you know, win as much time as they can under these circumstances. You know, what you see with China, like the Belt and Road Initiative, it's been very interesting following all the updates on that, because what you see is they'll go into various countries, various places, and they'll be like, look, we'll build a whole bunch of infrastructure. And so they, you know, there's like some genuine material well-being that they bestow on some very underdeveloped country. Now, of course, you know, there's a deal there. So like, okay, we got to take your natural resources after that, right? Yeah. So it's almost like an upgraded version of imperialism, whereas the U.S. is still, we're operating off the old model of like, what if we just topple your government by funding some death squads and put a puppet dictator in place? Cool, cool. You know, and funny enough, that was actually the upgraded version of the previous kind. Think of like the British Empire where... where they just go in and start shooting over. people themselves. Like, <laughs> yeah. they don't even have a puppet dictator. They're like, I'm the dictator, bitch. Like, do something, you know? So, um, I forgot my question was, uh, what, what do you make of, <laughs> what do you make of um, this, like, upgraded version of expansion and imperialism? Because looking at it as an outsider, even though I'm not really an outsider, I'm American, but I'm looking at it, I'm going, that seems a lot smarter, and it seems like it's actually going to work. And so we're definitely on the decline of the U.S. empire. Well, it certainly is less costly. They're not building 750 military bases around the world. They're not giving security guarantees to everyone, anyone at all. They're not promising countries to come to their defense. The, the Chinese, sorry, the Saudis can threaten that, well, we're going to buy Chinese weapons if you don't sell us these weapons. Go ahead. Chinese weapon sales does not come with an explicit or implicit defense contract, uh, a defense pact as the U.S. does. Mm. So go ahead. If you want to buy it, buy it. You're not going to get the same thing as, as the U.S. was offering. So I think it's an empty threat. They'll do it, but they're not going to get what they want uh, from doing so. Uh, and I think what the Chinese essentially have decided is, you know, they're not going to compete with the U.S., where the U.S. is strong, which is, you know, all of these military bases and alliances. They're just going to go in economically. Uh, and their priority is to move millions of their own people out of poverty. I think, you know, down the road, it's going to create all kinds of other problems because they don't seem to be taking particular care of environment. Not to say that we're excellent at it either, but nevertheless, there's a massive amount of exploitation taking place. And our response to that is to, okay, well, we do want to compete with you militarily. And we're that doubling down and tripling down with military alliances, et cetera, completely missing the fact that that's not what the Chinese are doing. Mm. So, I saw, you know, in the middle of all of this talk that, you know, the idea of spheres of influence that Russians had been issuing and saying that, you know, they need to have their sphere of influence respected by the West. And, and our response was essentially that's, that concept doesn't even exist. It's yeah. ridiculous. Right in the middle of that, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal that says that the U.S. is fearing that China is building a military base. We still don't know if it is, but they're building a base. It might be military right in our backyard. I'm going to let you guys guess. Where do you think that backyard it was? was? The west coast of Africa. West coast of <laughs> Africa. Our There's a whole ocean there, backyard. bro, but that's <laughs> Can you imagine? That's incredible. Our backyard. I mean, and it actually said that term, I think, twice mm -hmm. in that article. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a typo. So we're thinking that that's the direction they're going, and they're not at all. They're not at all. They're focusing on something completely different, and we should actually, in my view, 
um, to the extent I, I hope that we can avoid uh, um, uh, security competition between great powers. I think it would, I mean, the greatest threat that we're facing right now is climate, it's pandemics. If we end up in this yet another cold war, we ruin our already small chances of being able to do something constructive on climate. Mm. Yeah. So I think that should be the overriding concern. But uh, a step below that is that, you know, we may need to have, uh, you know, all our ducks in a row when it comes to economic competition, et cetera. But just tripling down on the military side is kind of like missing the point of what this century is going to be about. What do you make then of the John Mearsheimer view that there's no avoiding the great, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but there's no avoiding the great power conflict. And in fact, to do so, you end up causing a lot of misery with these liberal interventionism, um, you know, global misadventures. So what do you view of that? Well, he's saying that in the sense that if you you, you try to create a world based on democracies versus authoritarianism, yeah. um, uh, and that I agree with him, yeah. uh, that it does actually um, tend to create more problems in that sense. Um, I don't, I have a massive amount of respect for John, of course, um, uh, uh, but I'm on a different side when it comes to the China debate. I think his view essentially is that this is just the way things are. Great powers are going to emerge and it's all about whether you dominate them or if they dominate you. Mm -hmm. And there's no gray zone there. I'm not so sure. I think that we are now in a completely new era of human history. Never before have we faced an external non-human threat, although obviously we're contributing to it, that is existential to all. No IR theory has ever taken into account that possibility or what the world would look like or how countries would behave under those circumstances. But we are facing it. Uh, and in my view, that needs, that needs to be taken into account and recognized that we actually are on the same side of all of these different states, Saudi, China, all of them, when it comes to making sure that we prevent uh, the death of the planet as a whole. Uh, and to con go down the path of great power competition and essentially thinking that is inevitable because that's the way it's been since the Athenians uh, 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 in Greek times uh, and not taking into account some of these other broader changes that is happening in the globe, I think would be uh, a mistake. That doesn't necessarily completely disprove what he's saying. It's mm. just saying that it's too simplistic for this new circumstance that we are in right now. Is there any way we can sort of great power our way through climate change? Like, no. for example, having like no. a, a competition if to be the best renewable energy creator? <laughs> we're going to dominate you, but please be really helpful on climate. I don't think that's going to end up working we're gonna have to achieve a level of human collaboration that is unprecedented in human history. To do that while at the same time being in a destructive, negative security competition, uh, I just don't think it's possible. Well, it, it, she's saying like a, almost like a global arms race for the best green and renewable technology. Oh, like, in that sense. Really, yeah. bro? Oh, okay. We just created something that vacuums out all the carbon dioxide. What's up? <laughs> yeah. like, really? Well, we just created flying no, cars. Not, you don't, don't think even... that's possible? Well, that, I, I'm sorry, I misunderstood your question. Um, uh, you know, I think a competitive element in that would not be bad at all. I think yeah. that actually could be good. Yeah, but we just need to not um, press that red but, button first. But we have to, yeah, we have to do that reset. To be, and, and I'm not saying that the laws of geopolitics are gone just because of climate. They're still there. But climate is also there. So we cannot just operate on our understanding of the laws of uh, geopolitics and ignore that there is this new threat out there that it simply didn't exist 100 years ago. Mm. Well... It is so fascinating speaking with you, and we are so grateful for you taking Thank so you much so time. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, My you pleasure. helped me My understand pleasure. a lot of things in a much more nuanced way. So Thank you. you Thank you so Thanks much. so much, man. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. All right, that was Trita Parsi. Very fascinating guy. Um, 
he knows a lot. Yeah, about the, the Middle East. The level Iran. of detail is yeah. really, um, really wonderful. Yeah, he actually um, he paid paid us a compliment about our how oh your questions are so much better than mainstream media. <laughs> But I have to say, that's so sad. It is because, you know, I mean, I follow this stuff, but I'm just a regular dude. I'm not some sort of deep academic on all things. Yeah, you got to give yourself credit, though. You've spent a lot of time thinking about foreign policy. But the fact that have a nuanced understanding. People at CNN and other big places can't ask better questions than me. Well, especially because they do. They have people who this is their whole thing. Like this is their specialty. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like if we were to go ask every CNN host right now, who's the president of Iran? How many of them are going to get it right? Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. I don't think that maybe some would say Rouhani, which is you're wrong because he was the last guy. Right. I don't know any of them would get Raisi. Maybe like a handful. And it's the ones who are just assigned for that particular region, you know? Yeah, well, and that's even, that's not even the biggest problem. The biggest problem is just, like, their ideology. <laughs> their, right, Like, yeah. hu- not only is their knowledge shallow, but it's also, like, wrong and directed and ideologically bad that's very ways. True. So. so, anyway, I'm obsessed with the this idea of the sort of semi-realignment thing happening. Now, the Kyle uh, foreign policy doctrine is relative neutrality. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in some ways, neutrality is bad with stuff like the media. You don't want a neutral media that always calls it 50-50. You want right. objective media. Um, but for foreign policy, relative neutrality, I think, is the best path because it's just sort of a field of potential um, without any commitments. If you're too close to an ally, then you're sort of blamed for everything they do. You're attached at the hip. I don't like the uber closeness. And if you're too distant and if you're enemies, that has a whole bunch of problems which are too obvious to even discuss. Yeah. Relative neutrality is the way to go. And so if you take a couple steps back from being attached to Saudi at the hip, for example, right? And take a couple steps towards maybe we do have some sort of a detente with Venezuela, with Iran. You know, I still, Biden on day one should have jumped back in that Iran deal. Yeah. I mean, people did not understand how damaging and devastating it was for the United States, for our perception on the international stage, which wasn't good in the first place, but it made it way worse when you had Trump come in and say, yeah, all those agreements we signed, rip them up. I'm not, I'm not interested in it. Not interested in the Paris Climate Agreement, not interested in the Iran Agreement, because then who's going to make a deal with you about anything? If you could just be like, ah, we don't like it, we're not going to do it anymore. Like, yeah. what? We should also go back to the Obama-era policy on Cuba as well, oh, which was another one that Trump just completely And Biden blew up. hasn't done it yet, right? Biden hasn't done it. Do they have they're, oil? They're so, no, they're so afraid of the Cuban vote in Florida <laughs> where Democrats are, like, never going to win again anyway. Draxed, so it's over. Just Florida. do the right yeah. thing at this point. He got draxed in Florida. He got destroyed. I know. I know. But they're still chasing, chasing that down. And it's also a very, like, one-dimensional view of what the vote is actually like there. But yeah, so put Cuba on the table as well. But it was really interesting to hear Trita talk about, um, you know, first of all, we're already in the multipolar world. Like Mm. the idea that we still have a unipolar world. It's a fantasy. It's over. And everybody's bubble should be burst by what's happening right now with Russia and with China. But I also thought it was very thought-provoking, his analysis that In that multipolar world, the thing that overwhelmingly serves not just the world's best interest, but the uh, United States' best interest is an actual rule-based order. And we've done everything we could to sort of undermine the ability to have that be the global system. But, um, 
you know, I thought it was really, I thought it was really interesting and really um, thought provoking for him to lay that out of his view of how this could work in a way that doesn't require some great power competition between the U.S. and China and a new Cold War and this new realignment that's going to lead to decades of hostility versus the collaboration that we need to actually deal with some of the problems that we're all facing. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to think of how you would do a genuine rules-based international order that is enforceable, but also doesn't lead to one nation becoming imperialist and neoconservative mm-hmm. and saying we're the ones who enforce it as they violate the rules. We get to pick how the rules are enforced and yeah. So how, you know, how could one do that? It'd be interesting to have a conversation with like academics and experts on that because I'd imagine there is some way to do it where um, you trigger immediate sanctions against the government if they do commit some sort of war crime and everybody agrees to it beforehand. You know what I mean? So if there is an invasion, then it's like just the next step is, sorry, the president and the military just get immediately, they get sanctioned, not the public. Yeah, so they tried to do or that. trigger elections immediately when something like that happens. They I don't know. To there's do got to be some way to do it. The League of Nations. And there's an argument that because there wasn't a perception that that would be applied in a neutral and even-handed way, that that actually encouraged the sort of like imperial um, and genocidal ambitions of Hitler because he thought, oh, this was put in place to punish me and I'm going to face these sanctions. So what I have to do is like take control of these countries now and gobble up their resources because this is coming for me anyway. The point of all of that is just to say that if you're going to do that and have that sort of like preemptive rule put into place, it's absolutely essential that everybody on the globe, especially all the big players on the globe, feel like that's actually going to be applied in a neutral way. And that's yeah. that's really difficult. Well, the thing is, because obviously the League of Nations folded because it you know, wasn't good enough, but the mm-hmm. United Nations is going the way of the League of Nations from everything I see. I mean, the International Criminal Court, for example— They've, like, only ever prosecuted and convicted, like, African dictators. Yeah. So don't tell me that, like, you know, we've reached a higher level of objectivity. No, we fucking haven't. No, we haven't. Mm-hmm. We all want to do that. If, if you believe in international law, you should want to do that. But the question is, how do you construct a system where you do indeed do that? And as long as, you know, one of the issues is as long as there's real, true, giant, genuine power differences between countries, then the one that has all the power is always at the last minute going to swing their dick around and be like, I actually get to make the rules because what are you going to do? It's right. like the Chappelle show skit when he was Black Bush. He's like, okay, UN, why don't you go ahead and sanction me with your army? Oh, wait, you don't have an army, bitch. <laughs> so it's like, so I'll do, I'm in control here, son. Like, that's the idea. And it's like, until you get to a place, I mean, but then you could have a conversation about, should there be some sort of international rules about the amount that, you can build up a military where it's relative, relatively equal, but then it's like, well, how do you enforce that if one goes above and beyond it? Do you trigger the sanctions for that? Like, I don't know. This stuff is very difficult, but a lot of it seems to stem back or go back to the fact that um, human beings just act really shitty. You know, like you got these rules on the books, you're supposed to follow them and then they just don't. And then we've got we've got all manner of good, bad and in the middle within the human nature, don't we? And it all just depends on sort of circumstances of what comes out and what ends up being the, the dominant force in the world. But I do feel like geopolitics in particular brings out the worst. Yeah. 
Because, because the people who run it are generally the people who have sort of like acted on the worst instincts and that's how they've gotten to the top. But then also you have, I'm sure nationalism never comes out more than when you're dealing with other nations. And nationalism is a potent, potent force. That's a hard one to get to get around. Um, you know, the other piece that I found uh, that I really appreciated is how he broke down what happened with sanctions on Iran and really debunked the narrative that it was our sanctions, Ob the Obama-era sanctions on Iran that, quote, brought them to the table in the context of showing that, you know, bottom line is oftentimes we deploy these sanctions because we want to do something and they really don't, not only do they not work, they end up creating exactly the outcome that you're trying to prevent. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a little more agnostic in general on the efficacy of them in certain circumstances. But what I'm not agnostic on is the moral implication of it. Because yeah. if you're hurting the public, in principle, I'm against that. I don't even care if it quote unquote works, if you just made it so grandma can't get a bite to eat. Yeah. Like, I don't care if the, what, that, all that worked. Well, so it works when you go stick up an old lady on the street and grab her purse and run away with all of her money. It worked. You got the money, but is that okay? Is that something we should do? If you're making new victims, then that sh we should all agree that's out of the question up front, you know? Yeah. So I guess I'm a little more agnostic on the actual question of the efficacy in certain circumstances, but there's no denying that the way in which we do the sanctions, because they're so ridiculous and over the top, we're 0 for 9 in terms of let's squeeze out some regime by doing it. Right. Like, that didn't happen. If anything, it makes people more fall in line behind the government because they feel like the others are attacking us, the outsiders are attacking yeah, us. Yeah, and it gives, if you have a government that's basically failing to deliver for the people, it allows them to say, it's not my fault, it's the Westerners, right. mm -hmm. it's the U.S.'s fault, and, you know, with some justification. Yeah, I thought the way he framed that, though, of saying, listen, we're out here saying... Putin and six oligarchs run the country and the people have no say, and then you're punishing the people anyway. Right, exactly. Well, that's what that's why I was the Laura Ingram thing about she was simping for the billionaire yeah, oligarchs in yeah, Russia. That was amazing. Well, and the fact of the matter is, if there was anything that has the potential of working, is if you sanction Putin and the oligarchs, because it's a divide and conquer strategy. You might have some oligarchs who are like, I stand with Putin and this is all the West fault. And then you might have some be like, hey, dog, I had my bank account before you invaded Ukraine. If you didn't invade it, I'd still have it. No one is enjoying, like, the benefits of uh, wealthy Western life more than Putin's oligarchs. So well, not anymore. <laughs> was hitting them where it hurts. Yeah, the yachts gone. And their kids and all the whole bit. Yeah, the, I, the one thing I think they haven't done, which I would have done, is ban them from leaving the country. Oh, you on, oh you're buddy-buddy with him and you're in his inner circle. Cool. How about you're there permanently? Like, see what you do now. How about that? You know, if you make it so that they can't leave there. Mm. Sorry, man. You made your bed. Now you're going to sleep in it. You know, that would probably be pretty hard to pull off. But I like the spirit of it. Yeah. I mean, there were I mean, they've banned Russian planes from almost everywhere now. Yeah. Europe and stuff. Right. Yeah. But I wish they didn't because I feel bad for the people. But for the asshole oligarchs, I don't feel bad at all. It is remarkable how we gave them the financial death penalty like that. I mean, Trita saying that they are now the most sanctioned country on the planet after, like, it took, like, a week. It's yeah, wild. Yeah, no, but I'd buckle it's up. Wild. There are going to be ramifications to that that people aren't thinking of right That's now. That's exactly right. They don't get it. People don't get it. You can't just do that. Yep. That's not a thing you could just do. And like, oh, it'll be okay. Okay. All right. We'll see. Yeah, we will see. Um, in any case, really wonderful talking to him. I think we could have spent all day with him because he has just such a depth of knowledge and um, clarity of thought on any manner of issues. So thank Very you true. to him. All right, guys. Um, 
Go sign up on Substack for the show, and you get the video of it a day early. It's $5 a month. Uh, thank you for everybody who already is signed up on Substack. We love you. You mean the world to us. Uh, shout out to all the guys in the control room. You guys are awesome. We couldn't do it without you. Shout out to Piper for doing the newsletters for mm-hmm. us. She does a phenomenal job yes, as well. Um, and for everybody else, you could still sign up on Substack for free as well, and you get the audio as soon as it drops, the audio podcast as soon as it drops, which is a day later on Saturday. All right, guys, love you, and we'll talk to you soon. See you all next week. <laughs>